0: Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Stephen Barrows, Acton's Managing Director of Programs, and Dan Huger, Research Fellow and Librarian here at Acton. Today, we'll talk about mission creep and COVID policy and our collective faith in our legal system. But first, I want to go to the pages of The New York Times and particularly some headlines that have appeared in The New York Times over the last week or so. Uh, Let me give them to you here. Fastest inflation in 31 years puts more heat on Washington as the consumer price index rose 6.2% in October October, for a, um, from a year earlier, its sharpest increase since 1990. The number of U.S. workers quitting their jobs in September was the highest on record. 4.4 million workers quit their jobs voluntarily in September, up from 4.3 in August. Labor force participation is static, a conundrum for the Fed. It's 61.1% down, 1.7 percentage points from February. And then this final headline, Inflation Will Make or Break the Next Spending Bill. So before we get into some of the later headlines in that list there, uh, Steve, I want to go to you first. As an economist, let me ask the very basic question here. What is inflation and how does it normally happen? And is what we're looking at – Kind of a textbook case of
1: inflation, or is it something else going on? Oh, thanks, Eric. You identified several things already in just the headlines uh, about what may be causing the prices to increase. Now, inflation is just a basic definition. You know, it's Milton Friedman saying that uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So, the, what uh, what that essentially means is in the long run. The price level is going to be dictated to, to, to central bank policy, dictated by central bank policy, and how much the money supply is increasing. And if the money supply uh, outstrips the rate of growth in an economy, you're going to see price levels increase accordingly. So, you know, that's one concern that we have. We know that the Federal Reserve has been engaged for many, many years in quantitative easing, you know, dating back all the way to the Great Recession. They've done significant quantitative easing and lowering of interest rates here in this uh, in response to the pandemic. Uh, but there, are, I think, other phenomena that are occurring here, and we have to kind of distinguish. Between the short run and the long run, and you identified a few things that certainly in the short run could cause a spike in prices. Namely, you uh, referred to the the labor force, right? I think we're seeing right now um, a, a lack of recovery of labor force participation. It dropped even further earlier on in the pandemic. It started to resume back to where it was pre pandemic, but it has not returned there, right? So you have a supply dimension here, a supply shock that's uh, that's causing prices on uh, you know input prices to go up, and then you also have concerns about the supply shock that's occurring uh, with uh with the lack of, of chips for all sorts of electronic goods, um, you have energy prices, which are increasing and at a rapid rate and lower production of, uh, of U.S. oil and natural gas. And so all of these inputs that the, that the uh, businesses are facing are going up. And if you see input prices going up, you're going to see prices that the typical consumer faces to go up as well. So I think the things that you cited there are particularly distinct from what the Federal Reserve has been doing. It's focusing more on the supply side, but it's certainly a consumer. Concern. You have to address some of the supply shocks in the short run.
0: One of the things that drew my attention in that list of headlines is the connection there between the job market, and you know, anybody, any of us who has gone to uh, a restaurant in the last number of months – so my my son just started playing hockey. Here in Grand Rapids, there's a hockey supply shop twice uh, a weekend or two ago. We tried to go there on Saturday, and they were closed because they didn't have enough staff. And they said they'd be open from 2 to 5 on Sunday. And We went back on Sunday, and there was another note tape to the door saying they're short-staffed and they weren't going to be open. As a result, you're seeing – Increases in wages and I actually want to get to what this may mean for like the fight for 15 because, you know, Starbucks is offering upwards of $20 an hour in some places. So you have wages going up, you have prices going up. So workers are demanding Uh, higher wages you have a lot of businesses who are still looking for a lot of workers so they're raising the wages that they're willing to pay people um which means there's more money out there than as i would understand it chasing goods and as a result you get this cycle and spiral is there is am, am i right about this connection and you know what how do you do anything about that?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. First, you're right. I mean you're seeing because of uh, the resignations that occurred, the unemployment that, that occurred, uh, the incentives that are in place to prevent people from going back to work and so forth that does happen in some cases. You're seeing that the marketplace is having to bid up wages to try to attract workers. And the thing about wages and when prices, or when wages go up is they tend to be what we call sticky. They ratchet up but they don't ratchet down quickly like other prices might. And so once people start getting used to having a certain kind of wage, it's very difficult to then lower their wages, okay? long-term contracts and so forth. It also creates some wage um, compression. And so if you raise uh, frontline bottom entry-level workers' wages higher, then you're going to have to uh, respond to the incentives of other people seeking to get higher wages at, at mid-ranges and so forth. So I think it is a real problem, the supply shock with labor and how it's impacting prices. Now, when it comes to just uh, dollars chasing too few goods, this is more of a monetary phenomenon that comes from the central bank's behavior and the demand stimulus that is it's creating. So right now we see, of course, this massive fiscal stimulus that has been occurring over the past two years. You know, First with the CARES Act and then subsequent additions back in December, you see the additional uh, stimulus that occurred at the beginning of the Biden administration. And when the Federal Reserve engages in, in cooperative policy, expansionary monetary policy, that's where you get the risk of long-term inf- inflation, where suddenly all of that stimulus is being, um, is being uh, promoted by the Federal Reserve's behavior to Purchase government debt rather than the, the the fiscal policy having to compete for loanable funds. So I think you're going to see both this demand side as well as the supply shock. I, I imagine there's also
0: an increased pressure on goods. You keep seeing the stories about you know milk being more expensive and and actual products we buy being more expensive. That's probably also exacerbated by the fact that we still have uh, depressed. Uh, services sector because you depending on where you are i'm going to event in new york city uh next week where i've gotten multiple emails about how i have to present my uh, vaccination card and a government-issued id in order to get into the building um so you have if you lived in new york city you want to go out to eat um you want to go you know to a show in the theater or something you have an additional barrier to entry, which is probably keeping people away from pursuing a lot of the services that they might want to purchase. And instead they're saying, well, rather than you know renovating my house, you know, I'll buy a boat or something like that.
2: Yeah, you've got <clears throat> you've got all sorts of displacement um, and part of this is related to government policy and part of it is to get back to central bank policy, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. Which is to both stabilize prices and to uh full employment. Full employment. Yeah, full employment. Yeah, not just not just minimal employment. And there's not really any levers that it can pull at this point. We're at a place that we were at sort of in the 1970s, where we both have you know large, measurable increases in inflation and also an employment situation that Might not be getting worse, but there's still massive labor market dislocation. And I think a lot of that has to do with the policies. There were a lot of people that went in when, uh, even when the lockdowns occurred, there were a lot of people that, let's say, had health issues that were on the cusp of retirement that decided with the additional risk posed by the pandemic, you know what, I'll just retire early. There were a lot of People, you know, student age who all of a sudden, you know, let's postpone entry into the labor force for this same reason. So you have this labor force contracting for all these different reasons. Another one I've heard from sort of multiple corporate reports, I believe this was FedEx. They were talking about, you know, trying to explain to their shareholders why they've had problems with retention. And a lot of it has to do with childcare and schooling. This is a lot of parents that the traditional child care, you know, not all schools are up and running five days a week yet again. And, you know, these are all calculuses that are made by individual families depending on their context. And if you adjust that policy, even, even something like schools can have an effect on employment, not just for teachers, but for parents, for other folks in childcare industries, um, all of this sort of ripples down
0: in sometimes predictable, sometimes less predictable ways. It does seem to me that there is a, a difference between what we're experiencing right now. And, and a huge caveat to the, you know, the differentiation between the 1970s and what we're experiencing right now is that a lot of this, at least as I'm understanding it um, – is unique to circumstances brought on by the pandemic and the policy responses to the pandemic that include both that can include everything from lockdown policy to the amount of money that we've been spending. But my understanding of the stagflation problem in the 1970s is that you had a the two things coupled together that were particularly problematic. that you had inflation, price inflation, and an unemployment problem. And we don't have the same kind of unemployment problem. We don't have enough people in the workforce, but largely because they're choosing not to be in the workforce. They could be in the workforce if they wanted to. Um, so what I wonder is there are a lot of questions about uh, federal policies and state policies that existed during the COVID pandemic where we were essentially paying people not to work. Uh, people who could fit into that category that weren't the ones who could easily work from home and not the kind of people who needed jobs usually in the retail sector and places that continued to operate. There was a group of people there who were receiving unemployment benefits that were comparable to or outstripped the wages that they would have made, and they were staying home as a result. Now, you've seen a lot of places, though, that extra unemployment money has been discontinued. And yet – we're still seeing this contraction in the labor force. We're not seeing people jumping to take these jobs, even though they are offering, you know, the idea of $20 an hour at Starbucks would have been wild and and kind of makes unnecessary at this point the whole idea of we need a $15 minimum wage. I mean, you've got people, you've got businesses who are now, saying, we'll pay $15, we'll pay $18, we'll pay $20, and they weren't compelled to do that by the federal government, and they still can't get enough people to work.
1: Right. Well, I think I'd have to dive in a little bit more to the labor statistic to see which demographic cohorts are uh, are not returning to work at... at at, at the rates that you're describing. But one thing that I think is manifesting itself here is some demographic phenomena that associate with the baby boom generation. So, of course, this is a very large generation now entering. Oh, so we're early, blaming the boomers. Huh? Well, yeah, blaming <laughs> the boomers. And we should also credit the boomers for much of the boom, of course, that occurred during the, their, their peak working years. And now we're getting those initial years of uh, the baby boomers entering into retirement age. And so, you know, certain countries are now facing or have already reached their peak workforce, so like such as China. And uh, in the United States, though not, Because of our immigration, is not going to experience the same kind of challenges from from a labor force perspective that China is. I do think you're going to see some of these headwinds as we see a very large generation enter into a retirement phase, and smaller generations then following uh, behind. So um, I think that is a factor here. It would be interesting to dig into the numbers a little bit more detailed to see which ones are not returning on the basis of the things that you're describing, because younger generations too seem to be not rebounding into the workforce at the rates that we would expect. What you would typically expect at least I think you would typically expect in
0: reaction from politicians to what we're seeing going on right now would be the traditional understanding that at a time when you're seeing inflation, it's probably not a good idea to spend a whole lot of money. And yet from uh, the New York Times, this out today – Later today, President Biden is expected to sign into law the $1 trillion infrastructure spending bill aimed at upgrading American roads, bridges, broadband, internet, and more. Of course, with a whole lot falling into that and more category. But the fate of the White House has other economic priority. Its $1.8 trillion social spending plan remains cloudy amid intensifying concerns over inflation. It would seem to me that in more normal times... It would mean that something like that was absolutely dead and yet you're actually having people uh, come out and make the argument that one of the ways to fix our inflation problem would be to pass $1.8 trillion in new spending and it it seems to me to just be another symbol of – the break between the people and our elites, at least in Congress, that they see it only as an opportunity to like, well, you know, if, if you're going to read the tea leaves, if you're the Democrats from what happened in Virginia and New Jersey and say, we probably don't have a lot of time left. The reaction is to say, well, we need to just jam through everything we can possibly get passed rather than to say, one, here's a clear message that people aren't particularly happy. And two, you know, the rules of economics still apply. And spending a whole lot of money right now probably isn't a great idea.
2: The other thing, I mean, this is part of the problem. When you have this inflation and you have these unemployment issues, people want to be seen as doing something, as realizing that there's a problem, doing some action towards solving that problem. And I think that's part of the infrastructure bill. As part of the political motivation there is we see these continuing employment issues, We'd like to do something there. And there's a real way in which I think a lot of people don't understand inflation um, in the same way they intuitively understand, let's say, being out of work or going to a store and finding that it's closed because they don't have enough people. Those are the things that um, I think politicians think they can capitalize on. The other thing is even if. They didn't spend another dime. Remember, we're talking about long-term effects here we're seeing. Going back to 2008, this is over a decade of government policy that has led up to this point. One of the things that could curb it is raising interest rates. But with not only the government's debt levels, but with the way that many individuals and corporations are leveraged these days, that's a political non-starter as well, so unless you get someone who could sort of dramatically make the case and take the sort of bold action that you know uh, Paul Volcker did in the eighties, um, in, in in a situation when where both the country and the economy was considerably less leveraged. We've got – this is just a sticky wicket
1: all around. Yeah, let me add to that. I think uh, Dan's right. On the one hand, you could have some of the government spending that really targets infrastructure and investment in the economy, which which could help the supply side uh, move along and help the production of of goods and services. But I do think that Dan's pointing out that the long-term uh, exit strategy of the Federal Reserve, I think they're in a real st- sticky situation. I mean, the Federal Reserve has been accommodative. They've responded to the pandemic just like they did back during the Great Recession by engaging in all sorts of quantitative easing, lowering interest rates, and so forth. But the Federal Reserve knows that it can't keep that in the long run. They've got to figure out a way to raise interest rates cut back on the purchase of government treasuries and, uh, and, and make sure that we don't get into a long-term situation of high inflation rates. And whenever you do that, you're engaged in contractionary monetary policy. Contractionary monetary policy, by definition, is a headwind against economic growth and prosperity. And, uh, and it's something that's necessary to keep prices in check. So I think the Federal Reserve is in a real tricky situation. I wouldn't want to be uh, Chairman Powell right now, quite frankly. <laughs>
0: Have we just been... Essentially kicking problems down the road for so long now that we were inevitably going to end up in some kind of situation like this where the Federal Reserve is in a difficult situation where it's looking at the circumstances as they exist on the ground right now. And looking at, you know, only bad options. I mean, of course, we should point out that just the simple wisdom is true, that like all the hard choices in life are between two good things and two bad things because the choice between a good and a bad thing isn't a choice at all. So, of course, they only have hard decisions to make because they only have – they have a certain number of tools at their disposal. That's right. And there's going to be problems associated with using any of those tools. And I'm wondering the public reaction too. and either of you welcome to comment on this. I'm wondering how the public, who has been listening to particularly uh, people on the right and Republican politicians since at least 2008, talking about the concern over how much money we're spending, that it is going to cause inflation. And we have spent more money and more money and more money and more money. And we have yet to see until now. This kind of inflation. So do people I mean, I'm wondering, do you think people take from that a bit of a boy who cried wolf that they've been screaming about a concern for inflation so long that which is why you could possibly get a disconnect between saying, yeah, but we spent a whole bunch of money before and we didn't have inflation so why why is it going to matter if we spend a whole bunch of money right now because this is just it's something else it's well, from is,
1: other reasons yeah this would be effectively what the modern monetary theorists would would argue that hey it doesn't matter how much you spend and how much money you print as long as you you know your sovereign currency is you're in charge of uh, of that it's not going to create any long-term problems i would say that there was a significant difference between what happened during the great recession 2008 2009 and what's happening right now back back then we had a banking crisis and generally speaking in a banking crisis Um, it is very difficult to argue that there's going to be any kind of inflationary impacts when you have such contractionary forces of the banking system on the verge of collapse. Now, somebody would argue whether or not The banking crisis itself was caused by bad Fed policy the decades prior. And I think there's a good case to make that the Fed was making imprudent choices back then. Uh, But in the end, I think that we have to remember that discretionary monetary policy, which is what the Federal Reserve Reserve has been doing for decades, uh, is a real risk. And it it risks uh, being too generous, lowering interest rates, being too easy on your monetary policy. I think you'd be better off pursuing certain various rules that have been out there, such as the Taylor rule. Uh, That way, you take the uh, And what is the Taylor Rule? Well, the Taylor Rule has certain factors and metrics that you use within the economy to determine the rate at which you increase the money supply and where you set uh, the discount rate. Uh, And so it removes the prudential judgment of the Federal Reserve governing body and instead effectively attaches it to certain metrics that will enable you to prevent inflation. It also helps the central bank be more independent and so some would argue that there's too much pressure even though the our central bank is you know, relatively independent. There's too much pressure to accommodate what's happening in fiscal policy, which is the government tax and spend policy that's, uh, that's implemented by Congress and so yes, I think a number of people are probably saying you're crying wolf, it's crying wolf but in the end, you can't just ignore the monetary realities of when you increase the money supply, you are going to have inflation if it increases at a rate faster than the economy is growing.
2: And in In terms of politicization, remember that the Secretary of the Treasury now is the former head of the Federal Reserve. That's right. And Janet Yellen. I mean, this is something, this political entanglement is getting worse and not better. And you saw this, you know, President Trump very actively would call for certain Federal Reserve policy. He would he would call for juicing the economy. And this is this is now become the norm right. in Washington on 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 both
1: sides of the aisle. That's right. Yeah, I, I, back during the the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, when when President Reagan came in in the early eighties, he understood that Paul Volcker was doing something that was necessary but would likely result in a recession, which it did, a very severe recession in 82-83. But he basically understood and said, stay the course. You know, you you, you need to do what you need to do um, as sound monetary policy. And that that sort of reserve and independence of the Federal Reserve isn't quite what it used to be.
0: Are we in for maybe this is the way to transition out of this topic, are are we in what you play prognosticator here, <laughs> uh, as dangerous as that is? Are, are we in for an, an inevitable kind of tough medicine solution of sorts, or at least balm to be put on this problem? And And that can come in however uh, you want to interpret the tough medicine uh, part of that. It could, could be raising interest rates. It could be any of the the other tools. But nonetheless, the kind of thing that would result in, if it's not a recession, at least some kind of an additional economic shock that would allow us to hopefully overcome
1: the problems we're currently seeing? I would, I would say this. First, um, the market tends to be very resilient. So um, I, I am an optimist when it comes to the market's ability to adapt to challenges and circumstances, just the ability of the entrepreneur to innovate and address challenges of the day. Um, at the same time, we do know that the Federal Reserve cannot remain at virtually zero interest rates forever. And raising interest rates does create headwinds. It creates challenges for you know, young families seeking to purchase a new home because now mortgage rates are very high. So um, anytime you have contractionary monetary policy, there are some uh, headwinds that you have to face, and I think that's inevitable going forward.
2: The other thing we could see that we haven't seen in a long time, but that we have seen historically, is one way to deleverage an economy is to let inflation run. Um, so there, I mean there there can be the, the 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 there can be the bitter pill of the sort of Paul Volcker model of raising rates. The other bitter pill might be that Americans live through a sustained period of rising prices in what is eff- effectively just a very regressive general tax. On the entire economy, which allows the government and uh, corporations as well as personal debt holders to sort of deleverage just by default, just by the devaluation of that debt along with the currency.
1: And so, of course then the federal government is is effectively reducing the real value of its debt. That's the danger, right? I mean in the end this is where hyperinflation is ultimately occur and I'm not suggesting that would happen in the United States, but if you take a look at hyperinflations as they historically manifest themselves it's because those governments don't pay their bills. And then they're unable to raise debt in the marketplace and they just turn to the central bank and say, pay our bills for us by printing money. And that, of course, results in hyperinflation. Now, the United States isn't at risk of that, but the United States, I think, does have a real problem of of higher than usual inflation and which bitter pill do you want to swallow?
0: Let's move from questionable government policy on a monetary side to – An economic side to questionable government policy of a different sort. And uh, about a week ago, I had a tweet come on my radar from Rochelle Walensky, who is the head of the CDC. And the message was this. Masks can help reduce your chance of COVID-19 infection by more than 80 percent. Masks also help protect from other illnesses like common cold and flu. Wearing a mask along with getting vaccinated are important steps to stay healthy. And I continue to be amazed by the lack – what is to me the lack of understanding of incentives by people crafting policy right now that – it shouldn't be a surprise and we should be i think quite content if you look at the number of people who are vaccinated um it's getting to me close to the number that's about as high as we're ever going to get which is also why i think the um you you have the uh biden administration's mandate a vaccine mandate the osha mandate uh in the supreme court and I, my you know, my own prognostication there is I don't think it ever actually happens in a large part because by the time that is actually going to be decided on, I think it's going to be pretty evident that it's just not going to have all that much of an effect. But <laughs> be wel- uh, I wouldn't be welcome to be wrong about that, but I can totally see myself being wrong about that. But that's my, my own thought. But the wh- – what I'm struck by here is the lack of understanding of incentives that telling people get vaccinated and nothing will change is – baffling to me, but also the mission creep of all of this, that it we have been trying to deal with a unique pandemic in COVID-19. And certain things that were advisable six months ago aren't as advisable now. Things that seem to make sense at the very beginning certainly don't make sense anymore. And Yet you have the director of the CDC now saying, oh, the added benefit is that it protects you from the common cold and the common flu. Those things are always going to be there. And it just seems to be incredible mission creep by the CDC to to te- to bank what they got in terms of masking policy and to say, well, now we should just keep doing it because there are always contagions out there.
2: So the masking policy is, is interesting because, of course, we started off That we were not supposed to wear masks. In fact, when I I started wearing a mask early in the pandemic, I did so with T-shirts and instructions from the government of India because the government of the United States was in fact – was at that point hostile to masks that included not only instructions on how to make masks but how to sanitize them, how to sanitize them if – you have a washing machine, how to sanitize them if you don't This is this very comprehensive guide put out by the Indian government there's never been such a guide put out by the c d c If you look you know I was recently traveling in airports in the bizarre array of masks that you see um of very different sort of qualities um that it's sort of baffling that you know, is, you know, will masks help in the transmission of respiratory viruses? Yes. Um, that's just sort of transparently so. You see widespread mask usage and contagions, you know, for a long time in many parts of the world. But it seems to be more about the symbol of than the actual masks themselves, than an actual sort of uh public health policy. And if you'll remember when masks were first introduced, when that flip happened, part of that was as a means to give people a justification to ratchet down lockdown policies, because we did not at that point have a widely distributed vaccine. The negative effects of lockdown were starting to be seen. And they thought, "Okay, here is something that we can do. Now the mask seems to be used as something to ratchet up, which seems just very, very strange to me and, and, and totally sort of incoherent as a policy.
0: The, the strangeness of it is in a bit the <clears throat> correlations of groups, the ones who are willing to wear masks and the ones who aren't willing to wear masks because I think you largely see that the people who are still willing to wear masks – are by and large also people who are vaccinated and the people who don't want to wear masks are also the people who don't want to get the vaccine and in you know normal times which we clearly do not live in you would expect the correlation to be i don't want to get the vaccine so i'll keep wearing a mask or i've got the vaccine so i don't need to wear a mask anymore and nonetheless we have this reverse co- uh, correlation with it that is would be Be baffling if not for what we know
1: about the height of political tribalism right now. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the explanatory factors behind that puzzling phenomenon. You know, I also think that people um, are assessing risk differently. And I'll just give you an example. So I I have an eight-year-old. A couple of kids came over to the house the other day. Uh, I had to then take my kid over to that family's house because I had to run an errand. And the family said to me, well, a couple of our kids have a cough. Is that that OK? And I said, well, you know, my kids have already had COVID, so um, it's, you know, I'm not too concerned about it as long as it's not the flu or what have you. And, you know, I could have just said, oh, a cough? no way. I'm not going to let my kid be over here. So that, that's a family decision. Every family has to make those decisions. But in the end, just how risk averse are we going to be? I mean, we can't stop. There's, there's, there's trade-offs, right? There's trade-offs to both protecting yourself from the respiratory transmission. And there's also a trade-off to not getting involved in social activities or having just your facial expressions, being able to be observed by people around you. And so it strikes me that there's been this hyper risk aversion and continuing to as we gather more data, as we get more people vaccinated, it seems like some of those risk, risk-averse steps, which are very understandable, um, should be reconsidered. And I don't know why it seems, seems that so often they're doubling down on things that don't seem to be necessary anymore. There's, I pulled this up from 2016
0: uh, just to note that the CDC has been giving guidance – On a whole bunch of different things, of course, having to do with the Centers for Disease Control, how to control the transmission of disease and how to better improve our health. And if you went through and read a lot of the recommendations from the CDC over the years, you'd think that they were crazy. (laughs) I'll give you an example. From 2016, um, story from 2016, earlier this week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came under fire for their new guidelines for preventing fetal alcohol syndrome, which told women who weren't on birth control to stop drinking alcohol entirely on the off chance that they got pregnant. Now, of course, nobody is going to follow that. It is because – and it's understandable how they come up with that policy though. Because they have one writ, right? And that is disease control and prevention. And here is where I lay a lot of the blame at the feet of the failures – of our politicians and our political institutions because part of the job of being a president or a governor or I guess even a congressman and a senator is to understand that various agencies, different constituency groups, interest groups are all going to have the thing that they want at the expense of all other things that we would call tradeoffs. And the job of a president or a governor is to weigh those concerns against each other because, yes, if you had the CDC in full control, then, you know, not only would we be having masking policy continuing forever and women who um, aren't on birth control never being able to drink, you'd reduce the speed limit to five miles an hour, right? Because that's a way to reduce risk as close to zero as humanly possible. But people aren't going to do that. And I think we had – a lot of politicians unwilling to acknowledge that tradeoffs exist and unwilling to do their actual role, to ask the question as Yuval Levin would say, given my role here, what should I do and say I need to balance this concern with a whole host of other concerns and come up with a more workable policy.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think the other thing about these government agencies is the trade-offs that they talk about are often the ones that are only seen as opposed to the ones that aren't seen. So uh, by way of uh, comparison, the Food and Drug Administration has an incentive to be extra risk averse about the potential dangers of of otherwise life-saving drug. What would get the headlines is if they approved a drug that ended up having – side effects that killed people, right? That would get the headlines. What doesn't get the headlines is disapproval of a drug that would have otherwise saved people's lives. And so there are misaligned incentives sometimes with government agencies, both in what is seen and not seen by the public about the decisions they make. And I think, unfortunately, it, it works to the detriment. Now, I think they do, obviously, lots and lots of good, right? I mean, these, these agencies do all sorts of things that are very, very helpful for society. Uh, but sometimes I think there's a tendency to be too risk averse.
0: Well, the incentive their right, is to avoid being the person who approved something like thalidomide. And the, exactly. the overarching concern right. of wanting to avoid that makes you more hesitant on approving things that could be life-saving absolutely yeah
2: there's even there's low-hanging fruit here like rapid tests and how the fda has dragged out the approval you go to any other nation in the world the availability of rapid tests any any other developed country it's is staggering i taught you know we have uh, acton has an office in rome and i will occasionally be in communication with them and the sort of availability of rapid COVID testing in Rome is is a world away from what it is here. So this is even, you know, this is a question of part of this is control, part of this is jurisdictional battles, um, part of this is proving the importance of these things. And there are some things that run against the grain of that, and part of that is the more you employ or you call on people to take individual agency like the government of India did early on with masks, like many do with rapid testing, with home testing that people can do, the less you're important and the less that Mm -hmm. you're decisive. And this is why you don't see discussions of things like the seasonality involved in COVID-19. You have these national guidelines that are animated by political concerns and not by what we have learned as with most respiratory diseases, there is a seasonality to it and you will see instead that that seasonality be deployed as a political football of at certain points in the southern United States with its COVID policies, it's worse there. So then it gets ganged up on about that and those policies are attributed to that. At certain points like today, places like Michigan, it's it's much worse here. And then people will gather around those policies to condemn those policies. But there seems to be no genuine interest in building understanding in a sustainable way forward with a disease that is going to be with us for a very long time.
0: There's a lack of an acknowledgment that what was pandemic, if not – if it's not already endemic – It will be endemic and it will be the kind of thing that will come around seasonally that we will have to deal with in the same way that we have had to deal with the flu. And I I think if we're looking for silver linings on all of this, I think there is a compelling argument that perhaps we should take the flu a little more seriously than we do, especially because you do get flu cycles that are particularly worse than other ones. And it it may not be unreasonable to say that we should learn from this whole experience that we should take something like the flu more seriously, that we should take – the COVID season more seriously and allow ourselves to decide what precautions we think are wise to take. Uh, So I want to, again, ask a bit of a prognostication question on the way out of this topic. So you now have the vaccine approved for five to 11 year olds. And you, Steve, you had mentioned that your kids um, have had COVID. Uh, So I imagine that's probably true of a lot of kids out there that they have had it and if you got them all tested for the antibodies a lot would have the antibodies and those who don't have the antibodies have vaccines available to them now so we're coming up on the holidays uh we're gonna have thanksgiving and then christmas and the new year and schools will resume after the new year will masking policy continue In the beginning of 2022 in schools.
1: Well, I hope that uh, at least they take a subsidiarity approach to it and allow particular counties to decide what the relative risk is for those school districts. Because, yes, a a sweeping blanket imposition by a state or, you know, at worst, the federal government would not be in the best interest of the people in general.
2: (laughs) There will be there will be masking in many schools in the United States the beginning of next year there will be there will be no masking in many many schools at the beginning of the year and those will i, I you know i sadly predict be largely decided on sort of the partisan makeup mm-hmm. of of those districts and that's unfortunate because different policies could be useful in different circumstances depending on the school but but so much of this has been sort of weaponized for political purposes that you'll you will get disparate Responses mostly characterized by that intellectual yeah, ala- threat A-
0: alas it is virtue signaling all the way down um i, I want to touch on one final topic that kind of preoccupied my mind over the weekend um, which has primarily to do with our confidence in our own legal system and as i was observing as many people might have been i don't know how much you've been following the trial of um uh, cal rittenhouse that is happening in wisconsin and i mean that has been Somewhat peculiar for a lot of reasons, and uh, in part because of, again, all of the politics that has been projected onto it. Uh, But there's also another trial that is going on that is not getting a whole lot of attention, and that is the trial of the people who have been charged with the killing of Ahmed Arbery in Georgia. And there's racial political elements to uh, to both of these in some understanding in that you had in the Ahmed Arbery killing a black man who was killed by two white people and in, in, in a bizarre circumstance – uh, having to do with the connections of those people to the prosecutor that almost didn't get charges brought in the case before more light was shed on it. But there's not a lot of coverage of that. And there's a disproportionate amount of coverage of the Rittenhouse trial, in part because the the way that it has proceeded has been um, somewhat surprising. Uh, but you you see a lot of politi- what I think are politically motivated reactions from people who otherwise, like you know Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, a, you know, self-described criminal justice reformer type saying, again, before a jury has even had a chance to uh, really sit down and consider the charges against Rittenhouse, that he should be locked up and the key should be thrown away. And the question that I want to ask is less to do with the intricacies of those two cases. I'm not a lawyer and I don't really want to dive that deeply into that. But What are the consequences? We've documented and talked a lot on this program about how we have been losing faith in our institutions. What are the potential consequences if faith continues to erode in an institution like our legal system and it's abetted by certain people willing to swing sledgehammers at our faith in those institutions? What are the downstream consequences? Because I I don't have a number on the court itself, uh, on the legal system itself, but if you look at the Supreme Court, it is largely still an institution that people have faith in. And I think even that is going to be tested in this upcoming uh, session that they are engaged in. But if we lose faith in the system that's supposed to mete out justice, if more and more people do, what would that mean for this country? Well, I think, think
2: about uh, just a thought experiment. I mean, um, both of these cases are, are interesting. Um, I think both of these cases are pretty open and shut um, on the individual charges, and 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 I won't. And and again, the fact is that they they fall into certain political narratives, which is the reason why there's any publicity at all. I mean, these are, you know, both both remarkable instances in the sense that this doesn't happen every day, but unremarkable in that both sorts of things happen fairly frequently. Um, And what you have in a lot of these cases is um, a reflection of the anxieties that people have themselves. Would I like to be arrested? No. Would I like to be go on trial even if I were innocent and even if I thought it was a great case? No. There are many people who plead down charges particularly because they don't want to enter the justice system because their attorneys rightfully advise them that the justice system is kind of a roll of the dice and if the prosecution is willing to give you a deal do it because the notion that you're going to get a fair trial is something we aspire to but it's something that is never anywhere guaranteed um and that is and often to get that sort of result is a very long and involved and costly process. Yes, yeah, as,
0: as lawyers joke goes, uh, everybody gets their decade in court.
2: Exactly. And so I think some of the lack of faith in the institutions is justified. We don't have a quick, transparent justice system in many cases. Now, there's a constructive way to respond to that sort of anxiety and there's non-constructive an way. One of them is to weaponize these cases and use them as sort of political cudgels. One of them is to use that an opportunity to think about, okay, what are, what, are, what are some reforms we could institute? Let's take away the noise. Let's take away the emotional drama and investment in these cases. Many times, you know, on a personal level, that might be justified for you. But that doesn't bring us forward as a society. And that doesn't bring us a more transparent, accountable justice system.
1: Right. I, I agree with, largely with what Dan's saying. It seems to me that we want to make sure that we're always looking to make sure that the justice reform system or the, the justice system is serving justice and serving the common good. And so that we need to make sure we avoid two errors one, thinking that a justice system that is run by Fallen human beings can't have problems that need to be addressed and reformed. I think that's pretty evident that we see that in various aspects of what we've seen over the past several decades. Uh, But also I think we need to make sure that we don't politicize uh, and and use the problems of the justice system uh, to score political points. I think that's when it can be really distorted and then efforts to make uh, reforms end up uh, just serving political purposes rather than truly serving the common good.
0: You may be asking yourself – how could I say that this is in some way Congress's fault? And I have an answer for that, which (laughs) is an observation that I believe I I heard from George Will, that a, a lot of the reason that politics has seeped out into so many other areas of our life is because Congress is the place where politics is supposed to happen. And it is not where politics is happening now. We have a dysfunctional Congress that I I cite the Yuval Levin piece from commentary that turned into uh, his book multiple times that Congress is weak because its members want it to be. And because they don't take up their obligation to deal with the things that we need to have settled in a political manner, that politics seeps out into other areas of life, which is not to say that there wouldn't be people who would be trying to capitalize on cases like this. For their own benefit, be that political or financial benefit or just to seek attention, I don't doubt that there would be. But if we had a healthier political institution that dealt with our political problems, I, I hope we would see a little bit less of the politicization of other systems from which politics is not fully removed. I mean obviously you, you elect district attorneys. Uh, you elect judges in some states but is only a contributor to that actual system itself rather than the central focus of it. Why don't we call it a wrap there? Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. Again, if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Steve. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.